0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, it is my pleasure to be at the Washington State University Vancouver talking with Associate Professor in the School of Molecular Biosciences, Dr. Steve Sylvester is joining me today. Steve, thank you so much. You bet. I have to say, you know, I'm a I'm a hair intimidated for this one. You sent <laughs> you sent me, I, you know, I used to I used to hide that when I started this podcast. I would go into an interview, I'd be like, "What the heck am I even doing here? I have no business interviewing scientists." And then I would get on and I would try to sound smart enough to act like <laughs> I would belong in the room. I'm four years in. I'm I'm done hiding my uh, <laughs> my, my insecurities from people. Let's put them out. There. I have I have many gaps still in my knowledge that I'm trying to fill in, and I so think I. you're going to uh, really help me out today because we're going to be talking a little bit about stuff at the molecular level. We usually don't get down there quite scaled down that far, and maybe a bit of chemistry as well. Never talk about chemistry on the show. It's one of the ones that I didn't pay attention in school when. when. When I was in high school, I feel like I could have got chemistry, (laughs) but I didn't pay attention. So it's not in there. I'll have to take some online courses or something at some point. And you sent me this list of this fantastic list of a zillion things that you do ranging from figuring out groundwater contamination, possibly leading to testicular cancer to helping contamination with oysters to maybe uh, some genetic or mon- molecular kind of cause of homosexuality. Like, who, who knows? You have all sorts of, <laughs> you have, so many things that we could talk about we might even do another who knows i live in the epi- in the area maybe we'll do another episode sometime if we really get into something but but you have we're we're meeting i'm kind of just getting started in in a real scientific pursuit with my life i've been i've been taking science i've always had a, a pretty a, a passive but a interest in science and i've been taking it pretty seriously for the last Seven years or so, uh, and then especially with this podcast, I started four years ago uh, that, that much more seriously. And now, uh, here you are. We are having a conversation. You're nearing retirement yeah <laughs> you're on your way out you've you've lived according to everything that you 've researched you've you've clearly lived a long and interesting uh, life and have an interesting history within academia Can you just it's been can, fun can you get us up to speed a little bit tell us uh tell us a little bit about well, your life
1: uh, so uh, i I started school uh, college as a chemistry major because it was hard for most people, but I seemed to be able to do it and uh as i got closer to graduation uh i was taking courses in psychology and i found the human mind fascinating so i stayed another year and got a degree in physiological psychology along with my chemistry degree and then president nixon changed my life uh he cut funding to the national institutes of mental health and the program that i was seeking which would be uh the molecular basis of behavior Um we didn't call it that back then we called it uh, neuropharmacology or something um, I had to make a change. So, uh, I was very fortunate. Uh, I tell young people that I speak to frequently that chance favors the prepared mind. Mm-hmm. And I had some chances because I was prepared as a chemist in psychology that made me kind of unique. And I got the opportunity to learn, uh, experimental neurosurgery and, um, so I applied for graduate school, and my, the advice they gave us was apply for what you want and apply for what you know you can get. And I was recruited by uh, a, a chemist, a biochemist, and uh, after I applied, that's when the cuts to the National Institutes of Mental Health came along, and so I didn't get into any of those programs but I got into a biochemistry program at the University of Dayton, a master's degree. I didn't know anything about the University of Dayton. Turned out it was Marianist. So I had to figure out what that was. Um, what is that? It was Marianist. Uh, uh it's a Catholic school. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> I was, know that. I was, and I was raised Catholic no, and I, I was didn't raised know that. Protestant, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, loves the brothers, got to know them and, and appreciated what they do. Um, so I, I went and uh, I walked into the biochemist and he was poking around inside a rat with sharps. And I said, oh, don't do that. He says, you know, surgery. And I said, yeah. So I took over right away and um, working with him, I learned endocrine surgery and did a lot of biochemistry at that time. Protein biochemistry, studying uh, how proteins work, how enzymes work. And um, I found a difference between male and female rats. So that was my first enlightenment that uh, being male and female was far different than just gonads and uh, I say boobs and beards when mm-hmm. I'm speaking to kids. <laughs> <laughs> uh but the livers and and the biochemistry is entirely different. So uh, that was my first uh introduction to looking at gender a little bit differently. And then uh I worked hard. I enjoyed the the laboratory research um and then i wanted to know more about the rat the animal so i tried to get into vet school and at that time it was harder to get in vet school than it was in a med school and um why is that all creatures great and small Mm -hmm. um a novel that became a pbs uh series um really drew in a lot of people to veterinary medicine Mm. and uh I happened, you know, to be coming in from another direction, but then read the book and went, oh. <laughs> um, and then there were, uh, you could only apply to one school in the U.S. at that time. So um, I had maintained my Washington residency, so I applied to WSU. And I asked for an interview because I was in Ohio and happened to be home and spoke with them. And um, they said, despite, my knowledge, physiology, and and anatomy of the rat and that, that I had not worked with the professional, the veterinarian himself. So I took my master's degree in biochemistry and mop floors and clean kennels and (laughs) had the good fortune to work with a veterinarian who was a professor at Loyola school of medicine, taught surgery there. Hmm. And, but then he, um, went back to Loyola for a little bit, leaving, a clinic, uh, in the Seattle area and his wife to run it with, uh, relief veterinarians. So I got to know three more veterinarians and, and talk with them. And, uh, one was also a previous professor. So, um, I kept getting interviews and I didn't get in. And so I got a job as a research technician and, you know, instead of working with rats, I was working with yeast and that was a lot of fun. I love the smell of baker's yeast uh, I, yeah I just I just did a I just did an
0: episode of on uh, on yeast and and uh, took a tour of the the full sale brewery um, in, uh, ah, yes. in, in Hood River-huh um, and met with one of their cool uh, lab guys there We had a big yeast conversation
1: so anyways then after that stint um, that was still biochemistry. Uh, looking at uh the building blocks of proteins and how they are manufactured in yeast and other organisms, I got a technical job with the vet school where I worked with uh diabetic kishan dogs. We we're trying to understand their basis of diabetes and um got my first introduction to reproductive biology um as being a sperm banker. <laughs> because uh, we needed uh, a fair amount of sperm from diabetic dogs who don't produce very much that's very good uh, so that we could artificially inseminate a uh, mother with um, a good dose of sperm and hopefully get some pups from from the diabetic uh, fathers. Hmm. So uh, more learning, you know, and then... Uh, I decided uh, I wasn't going to get into vet school. And so I went up back up the hill to the amino acid. That's the protein building block lab and finished a, uh, uh, a, uh, a grant there, a research grant for a professor who had uh, Alzheimer's, unfortunately, and wonderful guy. Uh, but he knew he couldn't do it anymore. And he trusted me. So I took over his research grant. And then after we we got paper out of that. And then I had to pick a lab, and I picked a male reproductive biology lab. Mm. So uh, then I learned a whole lot more about male reproduction. And it was an era where we were switching our focus from proteins to molecular biology, that is DNA. Around what
0: time was it, uh, around what year was this? Uh,
1: This would have been 70... Nine eighty, Okay. And, and certainly a lot started before, um, Genentech had already started. Uh, but, um, basically we had a rather famous individual come and talk in Pullman and he met with, uh, our, my lead professor and he said, why are you doing it that way? The protein way, the old way you should be doing the microbiology way. And it stunned my professor and he went home and he came back and said, we're switching. And just like that, we became the first lab to use molecular biology uh, uh, in uh, reproductive biology of the male. And very shortly, everybody else jumped on. Um, so um, did that for a long time. <laughs> Got my PhD, stayed as a postdoc. Uh, then I became a research assistant professor and did that. And I was a research associate professor And I started the DNA sequencing core facility. So DNA has a spelling. It's all letters of A, T, G, and C. But those sequences, how they line up, A, 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 G, C, C, D, 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 T, D, T, T, that sequence means something sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so how do you figure it out? Well, first, you have to know the spelling. And that's what DNA sequencing is. What is the sequence of A's and T's and G's and C's? And um, so from that, we get information. And there's one two-letter word, CG, which if you see it stuttered, CG, CG, blank, blank, CG, CG, blank, 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 CG, 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 that means that there's a gene coming up in the DNA sequence. Hmm. And then within the gene, there's three-letter words, and that tells you... Uh, about the protein that's going to be made. There's also other words that tell you um, where to stop and start because uh, the way genome is in uh, eukaryotes, that is animals, plants, is uh, it's like a sentence that's broken many times and a paragraph that's broken many times. And so you have to know where the words stopped and where they start again. And There's a little bit bigger words that tell you that, oh, it's here. So there's actually more junk DNA between the words than there is in the words Mm -hmm. in most genes. But this gives us uh, an amazing ability uh, to have far more genes because you can connect A to B to C, or you can connect A to C. Or you can skip A and just put B, C. So rather than having one gene A, B, C, You can have more genes. And Mm -hmm. this is phenomenal and allows us to, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) to create genes that we don't have. And this is really important in the field of immunology. Um, We detect structures of proteins and carbohydrates in other organisms, say, like this variety of the flu this year. Well, we've never seen that before, but we need a protein that will stick to that flu particle. So we have to design a new protein. We have to sort of fudge the genes that we have to create this new protein and attack that and get rid of it before it gets us. Mm-hmm. So uh, life is just, you know, in all my career, it just blows me away how amazing life is. And, and you know, um, Escherichia coli, E. coli, the bacteria. When I was an undergraduate, one of my professors said, "We know more about this organism than any other living thing on Earth." He said, "We probably know five percent of what there is to know." Right. And there have been thousands of papers in the forty years, thirty years, whatever it is since. And I can honestly say we probably know about five percent of what we know need to know about E. coli. <laughs> right. Right. So that's that's the the fascinating thing about science. It just mm feeds on itself it's 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 wonderful and it's exciting and uh i get to have the joy of of finding things out um richard Feynman wrote a book about that the pleasure of finding things out and that's kind of what keeps me going Um, yeah even past i thought the minute i get to retirement age i'm gone because i've been working too hard but here i am past it and looking at a couple more years and and uh (laughs) loving it Yeah, yeah that's fantastic yeah
0: um yeah well I I actually understood everything that you said. Okay. <laughs> so so <laughs> that's uh I I you did a fantastic job of explaining uh everything and we uh we we do talk a fair amount um about some uh, uh gender differences on the show definitely mm-hmm. pr- probably some kind of higher up uh functions than mm-hmm. than what you're uh, referring to, so it might be interesting to get into a little bit of some of the microbiology of, uh, of gender differences. Okay. A bit.
1: So you just said microbiology, and I want you to differentiate between okay. micro and molecular. Oh, and, yeah, oh yeah. people, do oh, this. Yeah, no, people right. you're not alone. People do this all the time.
0: Uh, no, I'm a fool. <laughs> no, don't, you're no, not. No, don't let me <laughs> off the hook for that one. No, no, even my wife, you know, and
1: I told my wife, and now she tells everybody else, a microbiologist uses a microscope and can see what they're doing. A molecular biologist can't see the molecules. They okay. have to understand them. Of course, we can see the groups of them, such as a drop of water. Mm-hmm. But we have to understand that it's H2O and it's got a bond angle and the bonds are short and long. And And water, I gave a whole hour lecture on water. It is utterly fascinating. It's the solvent of life. Mm-hmm. So um, back to where you were headed. Um Molecular biology, yeah, it's about uh, the chemicals of life. It's biochemistry, but more than what we used to call biochemistry when we got into DNA and RNA. Then we changed the name to molecular biology. And they still use biochemistry. And, well, that's people that are doing more chemist, you know, type stuff, uh, whereas molecular biologist is working with DNA and RNA and protein.
2: Hmm. Yeah.
1: So... That's the difference between micro and molecular. (laughs) Uh, That's
0: very good for me to know. See, oh, they got to embarrass myself once. And then in the future, I got it. It wasn't even, it wasn't even terribly embarrassing, but it's, it's fun to imagine. If you're lucky, it, it doesn't always happen, but once in a while, I'll ask a real dumb question. You'll get to see my face turn bright red. Oh, I hope it happens for you. It's quite a sight. Hasn't happened yet, but it's, uh, if you're lucky, you get to experience it. We'll see what happens. Uh so far so good. So <laughs> so there there's all this there's all this debate these days. This is uh, uh <laughs> and we know from the show that it's uh that the nature versus nurture debate is really kind of not something that it's far more nuanced uh than <laughs> that if you talk to anyone within academia, but when you're talking amongst the public, this is still a big uh, Certainly. nature versus nurture and, and there's definitely a lot of people these days kind of talking about the sociological aspect of you, you know, you paint the boys room blue when they're a baby and that's why they like trucks, uh, <laughs> la- la- later on. There's, there's a, there's a bit more, uh, going on on, on a molecular level even that's, that's creating uh some of these differences may maybe not necessarily in how one goes about <laughs> choosing the their color preferences later on in life, but what's your fun little is it boobs and boobs and beards boobs and beards it's it's even even <laughs> in terms of differences in a liver. Can you explain that
1: yeah, the differences in the liver that I found is that I was looking at enzymes that uh make steroid hormones water soluble mm-hmm. so that we can pee them out okay so the way hormones works is you want a response some reaction to occur but then you want it to go away so like adrenaline which everybody has experienced, you don't want to be hyped all the time you'd burn yourself out but you sure want to be there you know when the bear is chasing you but you shouldn't be running anyway um So you need that response, but you need it to go away. So same with the steroid hormones. They have roles uh, in both the male and the female, and the levels go up while they need to come down. And so part of that processing is as the blood carries the hormone around to the liver, the liver takes it in and makes it a little more water-soluble. The steroid hormones are classically insoluble in in uh, aqueous systems, and they have to be carried by proteins in the blood um, to be delivered to cells uh, through receptors to get a response. Mm. So in order to get peed out, they have to become more water-soluble. So the liver takes them as they come by and makes them water-soluble, puts them back in the blood. They go around to the kidneys, and they go out in the urine. Mm. Okay. So, what I found in that early work was that in female rats, there was another enzyme that didn't exist in male rats in the liver. And so, I went back to my surgery and I castrated the males, you got a male pattern. I castrated the females, I got a male pattern. Well, then I thought, well, what happens if I add estrogen, the female hormone, To a male, well, males already have some, but not as much as females do. To the male, I got the female pattern. And when I added testosterone to a female that I had castrated, Mm -hmm. I got the male pattern. Hmm. So the liver was responding to the levels of estrogen or testosterone. And as I said below before, males have high levels of testosterone, level, low levels of estrogen, and females are the reverse. They have high levels of estrogen and low levels of testosterone. So I began to see that there's differences at the molecular level. At the hormonal level, of course, we know that. So that sat in my mind for quite a while, and... Then later in my career, when I went into male reproductive biology, science really didn't know what to do with us because we're a little weird. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so they put us with the female reproductive biologists. And, <laughs> that seems like a yeah, natural and, pairing. And, and then they, since we've got males and females, they put us with the embryo people, the embryogenesis people. What happens uh-huh. when you mix males and females together? You get offspring
0: so <laughs> is that I, i'm following the path so far I, I can get how this comes together sure yeah,
1: so so going to conferences i began learning more about female and also about embryo mm-hmm. and chance favors the prepared mine again the opportunity came up to teach embryology in pullman and i went oh my god i never had embryology you know i know the male and the female and i know a little bit about early embryo but that's it you know, after the fusion of the gametes and the first few divisions and that kind of stuff, I didn't know it
0: so but, so a kid goes into your class. they need this all important embryology course, and they walk in and little do they know their professor <laughs> their professor's scrambling to put together
1: well, uh, scrambling was thirteen hours of prep for one hour of lecture, <laughs> and no question about the next chapter, please. <laughs>
0: Today's rest from attention fatigue is brought to you by the Quip Electric Toothbrush. Go to getquip.com to find out all about the Quip electric toothbrush. It has changed my life. You know why? I don't need to think about it anymore. You go to the store, they're going to try to sell you a million different toothpastes. Most of, oh, whitening, I want whiter teeth. And then it has abrasives in it that can be harmful to your teeth and chemicals that don't work. You want to go to your dentist every six months is what you want to do. And you want to keep your mouth healthy using a Quip electric toothbrush, which monitors the amount of time that you're using it. It gives you feedback so you know when those two minutes that you're supposed to brush are up and you're brushing for that length of time and not longer. It's gentle on your gums. Some electric toothbrushes are too aggressive, too abrasive, and it also delivers refills to your door that's the number one thing no more thinking about it i'm not marking my calendar i'm not worrying about adding it to the grocery list and squeezing every last little bit of toothpaste out like a toothpaste junkie because i can't i need one more I hit of toothpaste because i keep on forgetting to get it at the store and and not knowing the right brush to get and when and All that is over. It's delivered to your door every three months without you having to think about it any more. No more toothbrush decisions for the rest of your life. A little tongue scrubber, that's a new habit you can build. And I've been flossing more. They don't even have, haven't even mentioned flossing this isn't part of the sales pitch, but I started flossing more because I'm like, well, I'm already taking better care of my teeth. Let's go all the way with it and build more of those good habits. This is the snowball effect of positive habits that can start happening in your life, starting with something as small as is getting yourself a proper toothbrush, a quip electric toothbrush. And, uh, you know, you can do all the research yourself. This is why it's been backed by 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25. If you go to getquip.com slash here we are right now, you get your first refill pack for free with Equip electric toothbrush. Get your first refill pack at getquip.com slash here we are.
1: So I had a crash course. And of right. course, you know, uh, it's been said the best way to learn something is to teach it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Sure. So, so then I understood more about how things happen in the embryo. Mm-hmm. And what it is, is there's dominoes. You know, that are in all these different paths and you knock over the first domino. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a, a, a gene that is controlled by expression uh, by the Y chromosome, which you need to be a male in mammals. And if that no- domino knocks over, then there's a pathway that starts going of other dominoes, you know, that fall and they trigger other domino splits. And so you get this whole array. I'm waving my arms wide here. No, it's
0: great. The that, listeners that says, have heard guests talk about these kind of cascade
1: yeah, of, of yeah. effects. Yeah. yeah. So when all that goes, then, well, you've got a male mm-hmm. that produces sperm and has a beard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it doesn't happen, you get a female. And and it's sort of been said that the female is the default pattern
2: mm-hmm.
1: because we all have an X chromosome. So we have femaleness, but the females have two X's. They don't have maleness, Mm -hmm. usually. There are shared genes that contribute at different times in the embryological process uh, to do different things in the different organisms, depending on which dominoes have fallen beforehand. Mm -hmm. So um, later I learned that um, this is a study that was done down at Corvallis that uh, there's a difference in the brain between the male and the female. Uh, a sexually dimorphic nucleus, And what that means is that two different shapes depending on gender.
0: So if you're looking at an MRI, you can take a look at a brain and you can, uh, with without seeing the boobs or the beard, you can potentially look at a brain and be like, oh, that's a male and that's a female brain. Correct. Mm-hmm.
1: The thing is, is that in RAMs, who chose to mount rams, Mm -hmm. they had a female brain. Mm. So I came to understand that gender is extremely complex. It relies on a big array of dominoes falling and others not. Mm -hmm. And we have whole bunches of examples of intersex Mm -hmm. where the dominoes got confused Mm -hmm. and, um, you've got beautiful women with a white chromosome because one of the dominoes that was supposed to fall didn't. Mm -hmm. And, well, the pattern went female Mm -hmm. by default. So beautiful, attractive woman who is sterile because she's genetically a male, Mm -hmm. but physiologically a female. Right. So this led me to understand, that it's not just the liver; it's just not boobs and beards. It's your brain too, mm-hmm. and and also, you know, when I have to admit, when I was young, I was really shocked at my response to blatant displays of homosexuality, mm-hmm. and I, it it made me ask myself, why am I responding like that? And it's because I'm a male, and I'm all male, and I have no desire for any other male. I have desire for women, right? So I really can't intuitively understand homosexuality i have to understand it intellectually and i do right okay so that's where i've gotten to in my life and um yeah I- there's a
0: interesting number of just from like a kind of evolutionary psychology point of view it seems like there's a lot of trends where like uh uh homosexual men will will tend to favor like youth uh, much in the same way that a heterosexual man will, and and females uh, uh, might um uh be more attracted to like status and other females, uh, the, and and okay. so there's there's these uh there there's these kind of interesting, very interesting similarities, mm-hmm. um where it's just kind of like the body got switched along the way, and and this is this is a lot of uh. It, you know this is a surprising thing that you don't see enter into this public conversation i guess people most people just don't know but a lot of times uh, if uh if uh like you're saying there's this um uh, this person with this beautiful female body and they're they're going i'm a male i feel like a male you can you can go and look at an mri and and that neuroscientist could be like oh that's actually that's a that looks like a male brain in there
1: yeah uh there's another story of a uh, um this is documented in the scientific literature of a circumcision that went wrong.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the doctor says, oh, that's okay. We'll just invert the penis and then they'll have a vaginal pocket and we'll give them estrogens as they grow up. And so the parents dressed the young person as a as a girl mm-hmm. and she behaved or tried to behave as a girl. But after puberty, says, no, I'm not a girl. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's because... The mind was male. Yeah. And then they got to break the news to you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> circumcision. Went, and they did a little improv. They, they just, you know, what do you do? Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe stop circumcising. <laughs> 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 now Oof. we're opening up more cans of worms. Um, it, so, I mean, these are. It, It is, this is what I love about my podcast is because you can, you can watch the news or you can go on social media and see people yelling at each other about this and that. And they're all using these same kind of arguments. And, and then I never, I never hear some scientific argument brought into, uh, into the mix. And it's usually just, uh, for for me, such a more explanatory uh, um, model, such a easier way of kind of making predictions and understanding uh, this life, and uh, and I'm hoping. Wait, wait, what's from from the time you you've been at this for a very long time? What what's its uh, what what have you seen in terms of the fluctuation in in public education, because you're going, you've been studying things like gender that can kind of ruffle some feathers. <laughs> now you, you you have some stuff about uh, you know, um, uh, GMOs, GMOs. Yes. All of everyone's terrified of the why the, the, the <laughs> mad scientists <laughs> trying to wipe <laughs> us out with these genetically see, modified foods. And-
1: see, see, but that goes to the understanding of evolution right. at the molecular level. Right. I mean. You share fifty percent of your genes with an earthworm. Mm -hmm. Okay, (laughs) and is that why I want to crawl into a (laughs) hole sometimes?
0: Sometimes.
1: (laughs) So, you know, all of life has certain patterns, and and when you look at the evolutionary process from the molecular level, you start with something that we don't understand. Mm Uh, initial life form that may not have been with DNA, may have been with RNA, uh, may have been seeded from Mars uh, through meteorites that didn't burn up in the atmosphere because there was no oxygen. Um, but something got this chemistry going in its own little environment. Mm-hmm. And that environment not, not, might not have been a cell like we recognize. It might have been a fuzzball uh, where the chemistry inside was different than the chemistry outside. That's required for life.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Wait, say that one more time. What's the requirement
1: for life? You have to have chemistry inside Mm -hmm. different than the chemistry outside. Okay. Okay? Mm -hmm. So if you've got a cell and put it in a Petri dish, you can have DNA and RNA and protein and amino acids and vitamins and minerals and everything else in the soup around it. Right. You can have everything that life needs. It's not life Mm -hmm. because life has to be contained in some sort of a shell. Hmm. the cell membrane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those life forms started getting changes when they went to DNA. And those changes we call mutations. Mm-hmm. And we think of mutations as being bad. They're sometimes very good. Mm-hmm. And the very good is the process of evolution. Mm-hmm. And going from single cell organisms to multicellular organisms, to on and on and on to people who can't get HIV, mm-hmm. they're mutants. Mm-hmm. But it's a good mutation mm-hmm. if HIV you know, had managed to spread like crazy. Um, so the driving force of evolution is mutation of DNA, and it's ongoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were born with probably 30 mutations, but it may have been junk DNA, and some mutations don't hurt, don't matter, don't change things. And then you've accumulated more since. Uh, CSI always says, oh, they're twins. We can't tell the difference. You can because they have different patterns of mutation. By the time you go from the sperm fusing with the egg to you sitting there, you have gone through trillions of copy the DNA, take the copy, and split it. Mm -hmm. So you've got two new cells with one old copy and one new copy because DNA has two strands. That process is when mutations can occur. They occur spontaneously, um, without smoking cigarettes or doing anything else, mm-hmm. but you can, you know, more mutations if you sit out in the sun too long, if you smoke cigarettes, if you breathe diesel exhaust, uh, certain things that you might eat, uh, behaviors, et cetera, you increase mutation rate and, with luck you can live a long life with not luck or perturbations uh uh not doing well (laughs) right uh cancer will get you eventually right um uh it's just it just happens and and i've i've pondered that for a long time why is it necessary to die Mm -hmm. you know and uh, you quit. Did you, did, if, if I
0: showed up here today and you're going to unlock the secrets of immortality <laughs> for me, <laughs> did,
2: this is about to become a very popular podcast. I think the thing better is the secrets of mortality. <laughs> sure, sure. No, uh,
1: I mean, you know, people can live wonderful, uh, healthy lives, do everything right and die because mm-hmm. the genes get them or. Uh, th- there is a subpopulation of humans that can smoke like chimneys yeah. and they don't have a high incidence of cancer. And, and one night I, I, I used to, um, I, I was a single dad. I had custody of three kids during a school year, but in the summer I didn't. And I would spend a lot of evenings just searching the literature related to my projects, but I would find other things and I may have found the gene That protects them from cancer, but I decided no way am I going to say anything about it (laughs) because um, at that time there wasn't anything you could do about it. There still isn't, but I guess you could predict. Uh, But some people can tolerate cigarette smoke, others can't. Hmm. Um, And then fate happens. Uh, Like I say, you can live healthy as can be and you've got mutations going on. You get a handful of bad ones and bang, you've got cancer.
0: There's a lot more ways life can go wrong than there is it can go right. Unfortunately, which is one one of the what makes what makes this experience uh, so special.
1: Yep. So um, it's it's been fun to learn along the way, uh, to grow. I think as a scientist and as a human being uh, has been wonderful. Um, I've made my mistakes along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't had a, a paper pulled out from under me necessarily. We were headed the wrong direction, but it's what we believed at the time, and it was based on the evidence that we had at the time. Mm-hmm. And and now we understand better, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, that's science for you. Yeah, it's, it is.
0: The science does a pretty nice job of correcting itself.
1: Yes, uh, science is self-purifying, mm-hmm. um, and that's something that a lot of people don't know. If if there's something that's wrong it's going to get figured out eventually, you know, and, and fraud. uh, Sometimes it takes a little time to figure that out, but the incidence of fraud in science is very low. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the reason is, is because you're supposed to publish papers so somebody can do what you did and get the same result. And if they don't, what's going on, you know, and usually it's an ego where people uh, commit fraud um, and they get caught. Um, there might be some that slides under the table, uh, but uh, um, somebody repeats it, doesn't happen. You know, what, what's what's going on? And then there's cases where scientists don't agree and, well, why? Why did they get different data? Mm-hmm. I know of a really good case where it was the strain of mouse. One lab was using one strain of mouse and the other lab was using another. And, well, mouse is not a mouse. It's which type of mouse is it? And just the strain, uh, a certain selection of genes... That distinguishes the two mice um, made the difference. Yeah. Hmm.
0: So, uh, well, this is uh, part of uh, it, kind of the uh, if you see uh, some some people on the news, some televangelists. That sort seems like the the uh, less beholden people are to the scientific method, the easier it is to get away with fraud out yes. there. Uh, so,
1: let me let me go back. You sure, asked sure. about that sort of a thing what's what's going on with science and society and
0: yeah i'm curious just over your uh, lifespan has like (laughs) have people warmed up to science has it gotten worse in certain regards is
1: it it, it's gotten worse um reproductive biology when i studied was funding at the 40th Mm -hmm. percentile and i'm a baby boomer after the peak so there were lots of people ahead of me and by the time I got in a position to write research grants, it was down to 11%. And then it dropped to 7%. And a research grant that I used to write, 20 pages, single spaced, three months of intense work, reviewing literature, writing, thinking, uh, proposing, uh, narrowing it down, trying to make it so people can understand it. And 90 3% of the time it got pushed off on the floor mm-hmm. and those were migrants sometimes mm-hmm. and that made it hard to stay in the field mm-hmm. and so I started branching out and went to reproductive toxicology rather than just reproductive molecular biology well that proved hard too because the toxicologists didn't understand reproduction and the reproductive biologists were having trouble getting money that's toxicology go get money from them <laughs> And uh, I was one of the early proponents of endocrine disruptors, and boy, I took flack for that uh, in the Society of Reproduction. And endocrine disruptors are chemicals in the environment, natural or man-made, that alter the reproductive process. And even the reproductive biologists were hesitant to accept that kind of a concept. But it made sense. Um, we can fiddle with the human body with drugs mm-hmm. or with toxicants, you know? And so why, why wouldn't there be natural compounds? And, 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 this is known, you know, don't let your sheep eat clover too much in the spring or they won't uh, go into heat. Mm-hmm. Um, New Zealand uh, it's a big problem. That's just a natural compound, but it's fiddling with reproductive process. So, you know, um, bisphenol A um, doesn't interfere much with reproduction, but uh, uh, at high doses it does, I believe. Um, I like to say the uh, um, manufacturers in China, Viagra won't even help them. Um, And that's, there's not, you know, how do you know because you haven't tested this in humans? I hear that a lot. Mm. And they argue that, oh, um, this, this, phenomena that occurs in rats and mice, how do you know that's any good? Well, they've shown it in humans and African boys. And so, hey, this is real, you know? So um, we're learning more and more about exposures and it's always a contest. Uh, The chemical companies fight really hard uh, because it's part of their, you know, monetary system. And the scientists are kind of playing catch-up some of the time. And the bisphenol A... They went to bisphenol S. Well, the scientists have shown now that bisphenol S behaves a lot like bisphenol A. Right. And then, you know, a government panel does a study and says, oh, we don't need to worry about it. And our scientist in Pullman, who's one of the early uh, discoverers of the bisphenol A problem, she said she wished it had never been produced on Earth. And so she's writing a – working on a uh, a response to the government uh, uh, consensus. Um, and it may be, you know, a lot of things, we don't understand all of the pieces of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. There may be a genetic susceptibility, you know, so like mercury, um, high levels of mercury, uh, can influence neurodevelopment, which goes on until your twenties. And maybe, there's people that because of their genetical makeup respond more significantly than others. Mm-hmm. And I played with mercury in my hands as a kid and, um, was exposed to it a lot and, um, don't seem to have suffered from it, but others do. And, and so there's genetic variability on how we deal with substances. Mm-hmm. And, um, So we're understanding that and it's going to, it's going to influence toxicology. The way toxicology is done now, the project I'm working on, uh, looking at toxicant and drinking water is we find the lowest active level in rats. And that's the lowest observable adverse effect level, the low AL. The next dose down is the no AL, no observable adverse effect level. Mm -hmm. and what the EPA does, and and the World Health Organization kind of goes along, is they say, okay, rats have a much higher metabolism than humans, so when we extrapolate to humans, we better cut it down by a tenth. And then for now, we don't understand the genetic variability, so let's cut it down another tenth for human genetic variability. And then to be safe, let's cut it down another tenth. So what I find in rats they'll say, okay, humans have to be one one one-thousandth of the no in rats, and that we assume to be safe. Well, Hmm. then we look at epidemiology, but humans are so variable that epidemiology doesn't always give us a good signal because, well, if they've got a high level of this in their water in that county, and that county has a high incidence of uh, some sort of a, Problem, well, oh, there's an association maybe,
2: mm-hmm.
1: okay? But you have to watch out because there's statistics involved too and a cohort phenomena uh, that can come into play. So, it, what,
0: What's a cohort phenomena?
1: Well, for instance, um, there's a grade school south of us here, and there were a lot of incidences of a type of childhood cancer. And so everybody thought, oh, it's because they're too close to power lines. Well, there's no science at all that supports any association of high voltage and cancer response. Uh, there was one study in Great Britain where they found that cows, downwind of some power lines, had a higher incidence of cancer. Well, electromagnetic waves don't respond to wind. <laughs> downwind, You know, yeah. but they happen. The wires are often coated with tars that have cancer-causing substances in it, and mm. rain leaches that off, and the rain would blow downwind and hit the grass, and the cows would eat the grass. Hmm. You know, so what makes sense? And I remember going to seminars where at Battelle, they had cables that were huge with thousands of volts across them and they'd put them over a Petri dish and expose them for a long time and they couldn't find a thing. So the power line business is, you know, there's just people are afraid of it and we've got blank spaces under it. But there's just no evidence that high voltage causes any mm-hmm. any problem that we've been able to find well then how do you explain three occurrences of cancer in a grade school well there's a probability and the probability is goes for the middle of the curve but there's there's some outliers and they're mm-hmm. on the plus side and on the negative side you know and so there were there's going to be schools that never have that kind of cancer and there's going to be some that have have it frequently just because of statistics and odds Mm -hmm. and then you have to ask the question well if it's not power lines is there something else and um so you know uh well, do, they, we,
0: do they ever have zero incidences in some school and they're like, well, we need to, whatever water they're drinking, everyone <laughs> needs to be drinking that water. Well,
1: that's it. We try to set, you know, given the EPA limits, no ales so that we can mm-hmm. drink water safely. By the way, state of California says that's not good enough. We want to go one 100th of the epa's one one thousands so that is why you will read things that says known by the state of california to cause cancer hmm. okay because hmm. they're one one hundredth lower than what the epa sets as a limit
2: okay okay Hmm.
1: so uh what we're exposed to on a daily basis what we can get rid of ourselves what we accumulate uh all of these things, we can't do research easily on humans. Um, I did a project where I looked at breast milk, and um, I happened to find a population uh, in Central Africa because I was working with anthropologists, working with women there, that had some really good breast milk, very clean. Uh, breast milk in the U.S. is intermediate. Um, some of the worst breast milk on Earth is uh, up in the Bering Strait, Hmm. And it just depends on exposure. And, um, the MDs, uh, say breast is best. And I still agree with that, but I think we can do better. And I've thought a lot about, you know, they send my grants back. What can you do about it? And I thought about ways that we can do things about it. And that's, you know, try to minimize your exposure, uh, during pregnancy. And, but breast milk, some things accumulate from the time you're born and go into your fat and unless you starve uh then your blood levels go up but it's released from your fat um but you just accumulate it in fat and that fat is very important to uh young mammals young humans to be in that breast milk but some of the toxicants go along with it and i don't mean to scare any female uh listeners um the united states and health health uh uh organizations are monitoring and watching. Mm -hmm. Uh, But like I say, I think we could do better.
0: Yeah. Well, one interesting thing is, is I want to make sure that I'm kind of understanding this correctly. So say, so say you find um, something in, uh, in, in the water supply, you you see that it's something caused by uh, fertilizer or something like that. So if you narrow it down to some specific um, chemical, then, uh, a, a company that finds it kind of inconvenient to change those practices, they could instead just create an analog. So now it kind of throws some of your research out the window. If, if you, if, if you find something that we'll call like CBS yeah. or something <laughs> like that, or C, CBT or something yeah. like that, you, you find that that's causing a problem. They can just go CBU and it's basically the exact same thing. No, well, but, it's got to be different. Uh, but it's it's – they've, like, tweaked some – so they've it's, like, tweaked, technically yes, They've different.
1: changed a chemical component mm-hmm. of that molecule.
0: So – Like, this is – in the in the drug war, someone ma- yeah. making LSD, now LSD is illegal. Someone can make LSA as yeah. a thing. And so yeah. now that's, like, a legal thing. And so then the government has to yeah. put in these analog laws so that it kind
1: of all that's, gets swept up. And, yeah, but that's but it's too like, hard because yeah. you cannot predict very well. Right. Uh, what's going to happen. And what is unfortunate, like in the case of bisphenol A, BPA, they went to BPS. So no more BPA in the drinking bottles. Well, they can do that. But then scientists have to get the money, say we need to do this because of this and this and this. and, And it's hard to get money to do research. There's a lot of competition for a lot of dollars. And finally do the experiments and go, oh, look, it looks like, Bisphenol S is the same as bisphenol A. Mm-hmm. And then um, the, the you know chemical companies can make a change again. Mm-hmm. And there's this period of exposure based on generalities before scientists catch up with the specifics. Right. And that's unfortunate, um, but that's the way it's done in our country.
0: Yeah, because science is very diligent, <laughs> which takes time. Takes time. Um, so... <laughs> So what from, uh, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but from, from more of like a a public policy standpoint, what, what could be done? Do you, you put, um, uh, some, someone in charge eventually down the line (laughs) who, who, who is interested in, and maybe more of a science based policy. And when we start being like, it looks like this. This um uh, the this way in in which we uh, introduce uh, new and and uh, companies are changing uh, uh you know changing their chemicals a little bit to kind of stay ahead of science so they don't have to change their costs and their profit margins. It looks like this is having some downstream effect, some uh, almost a a cultural cascade of effects. Is is there some sort of policy that could be implemented to uh, to change that domino effect in science's direction?
1: That policy would be regulation. Mm-hmm. And uh, people don't like regulation. It's right a dirty now. word. <laughs> We're having trouble regulating the stuff we know about mm-hmm. right now, let alone the stuff we don't know about. Th- there's cost benefit. Um, we've got a tremendous lobby uh, from the big companies. So I don't think it's going to change quick. Uh, I would like more science to be done uh, before chemicals are released. That costs money. Who's going to pay for it? Um, so cost benefit, risk benefit. You know, what are the risks? What is the benefit? What do we do? So, for instance, there I'm aware of a pesticide that's really bad, and everybody knows it. But the EPA has a rule that they won't take away a pesticide unless there is something that will replace it. Otherwise, agriculture is going to die. So what we do is we learn as much as we can about something like that, and then we train our pesticide applicators and the farmers to do the best job they can and use it correctly. Uh, It's called integrated pest management that you spray at the right time with the right chemical at the right dose and you know what's going on with it so that it doesn't end up in the food in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And it's used effectively. You don't have to spray multiple times because you did it when biology said this is when it's going to be most effective. You know, crane flies. You can go to Home Depot and buy a chemical and treat crane flies. It's only effective about the first week of the of April. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and It would be nice if that knowledge went out, but then the company couldn't sell as much of the pesticide at Home Depot.
0: Yeah, that's why (laughs) sometimes my ant traps work really well, and then all of a sudden they just completely stop working. Oh, boy.
1: I know that one. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, So... All right. Well, I'm about to make a huge jump back to something we were talking about earlier. So this is as good a time as any since we're kind of going to make a jarring jump. But also, um, before we wrap up, you can kind of close the, uh, any uh, any loose ends that we have. But this is a good time. to. I always ask my guests each week to name a uh, charity of their choice. Um, so what would you like to plug?
1: Um, Mount St. Helens Institute. Uh, My wife and I are members, and um, they promote STEM education, which I do actively in high schools and junior highs in the area, and uh, particularly for young ladies. So Geo Girls is a program they have, and um, they get the young ladies out on the mountain, um, and (laughs) they get rained on, Uh, they camp out, but they learn a lot. And um, when I started in biochemistry, there was one female grad student, no female faculty. And we started to see an influx of females first on their own, just out of interest, I guess, I can do this. And then there was a commercial on television where a woman said, "Well, I have a PhD in biochemistry, and there was a statistically statistically significant sharp increase, hmm. such that now there's actually more young women uh, in many programs, and there are young men mm-hmm. in biochemistry and molecular biology. So um, I've always been a bit of a, a not a radical feminist, but supportive of of uh, women's issues, and and um, so this is where I think that." There's good minds that aren't contributing because they're told, oh, you can't do that. That yeah, you can do it. Mm-hmm. And so GeoGirls gives these young ladies a chance to see what science is about, to think about it, to meet with female scientists as role models, and so that's uh, why we like to support this program. Mm.
0: Well, this is this is a positive change you may have seen in science and, in your in your lifetime in science. Where when you started, there was uh, there was kind of these uh, you, you know a little more stereotypical uh, roles, and, and maybe not females getting into the. Which, if you look at if you look through uh, my list of podcast, I think uh, yeah. uh, of the last. Fifteen episodes or so that I I've had I've had um, more if not far more f- females mm-hmm. um, than males and this was this was a, a time in our history where we were missing out and uh, the the mental resources of fifty yeah. percent of the population <laughs> yeah really that we are missing out on
1: <laughs> I mean look at look at uh, I can just name a whole list of of uh, female scientists that have contributed and love the stories they tell of mm-hmm. what they went through um, you know. Uh,
0: we were just talking about Barbara McClintock. Yeah, yeah, yeah Barbara
1: McClintock. Yeah, uh, nobody believed her, mm-hmm. you know, and and um, it 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 still goes on a little bit, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And or you didn't play by the rules. You didn't get your PhD until you were fifty five. So what? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> um, science is self preferring We will figure it out. Mm-hmm. And but but to to miss half of the mental. Uh, contribution that could have been given to humanity because of attitudes is really sad. Mm-hmm. So there you go.
0: <laughs> We're trying to correct that. All right. So here's my last, and, and you're welcome to, like I said, any anything that uh, that you wanted to get out there or, or close uh, some loose en- ends on um, that's popping in your head, you're welcome to throw it out there as well. I had a question, going back to these gender differences, it, it did... It occurred to me that maybe we made it seem like a little too, like, when- Strict of these kind of domino effects of like you, male and female, and sometimes like a body gets swapped, but there's also kind of this spectrum of variance. What happens? So let's just look at beards for a second because I have, I just shaved mine recently, but if it's growing out a little bit more, you'd see that, uh, that my, that my brain, uh, that my beard seems to have like some estrogen in a few spots here and there <laughs> where, where I, where I didn't get the appropriate amount of testosterone levels. So there's There's these variations where, so what, what happens when, when when take a male, you can take a male rat or whatever species, what, what happens when, when there's this spectrum of, of how much testosterone or the, uh, the, oh man, what, what am I trying to say? Like kind of the, um, sensitivity to testosterone when there, when there's these changes even within, um, let's take a, a regular old straight, Male, human, rat, whatever, but but there's but there's variation. You know what I'm trying to? Oh,
1: there is. There's all kinds of variation. In fact, you know, there's a clinic in Portland, Portland uh, that uh, looks at blood samples and says, "Oh, you need to supplement with the testosterone." Mm-hmm. You know, and and here's all the benefits. Well, you have to be careful because we know that uh, uh, some of the androgens uh, cause problems, uh, like with uh, the former wrestlers and weightlifters and things like that. Mm-hmm so yeah there is a spectrum and it's not just testosterone it's really the testosterone estrogen ratio and then it's just not that it's the phone calls there but nobody listened okay so testosterone's the phone call but the receptors the mm-hmm. proteins that bind to testosterone and then give a response something's going on there you know so it's a smaller set of dominoes after the system has been set up but some of them don't work so hot you know, if you're set up a bunch of dominoes to tip, you've got to move one over just right to get it, to, you know, the one behind it to hit two, knock them both off and send them. Uh, and just a little bit of probability, uh, uh, <laughs> seasonal variation, what's in your diet. Uh, all of these things can fiddle with ratios and, and um, there's, there's the ohms, the genome. We're getting a handle on that. So the genome is the set of genes that are present in a given organism. Well, then there's the expressome. So all of our cells have the same genome in them, but our liver cells don't read all of that blueprint. They only read a select blueprint. Our eye cells read another area of that blueprint. Um, that's the expressome. Well, then there's the proteome. So the expression of DNA is that DNA makes RNA. RNA looks like DNA, only it's got one strand instead of two. And RNA carries the three-letter code that makes proteins. And there's 20 different letters in proteins, and then we fiddle with those and modify them a little bit. And they create this grape cluster of a bunch of atoms that folds up very specifically and has scissors, super glue, Velcro, magnets uh balloons and sweater frictions and holds things binds them specifically and cuts and modifies and and glues things together and those are the enzymes then that you know you've got genome you've got expressome you've got proteome then there's metabolome and the genome that's You know, varies because mutations, they don't happen too often. Expressome, that listens to cyclic hormones, to uh, things that we eat, mealtime, to photoperiod light. Um, The proteome, proteins hang around for a long time or they go away real quick depending on what's required. The metabolome, that's what we eat, the sugars and and amino acids and nitrogen compounds and and other things. um, That varies on a minute. Right. So we're beginning to get the genome. The expressome's is a little further behind. The proteome was worked on years ago, but we're coming back and we're looking. And it's not just one thing; it's a cadre of things that work together. And we're starting to understand how all of this works together. And it's it's too complex for a human, so we have to use computers to right. to find things out. But I'm excited for the future. Uh, the microbiome. Good gosh, the It's just exploded in the past five years of what our gut microbes can. They can influence our brain. That's just crazy, but Mm -hmm. you can explain it now. And so we've got so much to learn. Um, I'm excited for science. I'm excited to be in science. I'm glad that I still have the mental acuity, that I can understand what's going on. And uh, I'm happy to inspire younger people, To take that path. That's, that's, uh, my apple.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. Well, I think you've really done that today. Thank you so much, Steve, for, uh, for sharing not just all of your, your research and knowledge, but your life history, uh, your, uh, your, um, point of view, the just, even just the, the history of, of how you've seen science interact with Our culture uh, through, throughout the time that you've been involved is fascinating and to deliver it all in such a enthusiastic and digestible way. Uh, when you, you could be, you could be out there, you could be fly fishing right now. You, you, you could have, you could have been retired and, and here you are finding time to sit down to, to, uh, to get some of this information out to the, the public in such a, uh interesting way, we're just very grateful for you.
1: Thank you. I've thought about that retirement business and what I'm going to do. And yes, I'm going to go fly fishing more. Yeah, uh, Haven't gone fly fishing, I think, in a year. Uh, but uh, I'm not going to quit. Uh, I'm going to quit uh, l- lecturing and, and probably research in the laboratory but i will continue to uh devote my time to stem issues um as part of my retirement
0: well that's wonderful that's inspiring to hear well we uh look forward to hearing more from you in the future and, uh, and and by the way if you're if you're in the if you're in the area, the Northwest area, uh, Steve sometimes does talks around town with a, there's an organization, Science on Tap. That's how I found out about Steve. And then who knows? Maybe we'll get him on uh, my show, depending on if it actually takes off or, or not in, in <laughs> Portland called Stand Up Science or. We have um, academics giving TED Talkish ish style uh, chats to people and having some stand-ups uh, in the mix as well. So, yeah, thank you, Steve, and thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people, and we'll talk with you more next week. thank you editor jimmy martin for making the here we are podcast sound terrific and thank you to the band rebreather for the wonderful outro music if you want more great indie music check out the jimmy pro podcast on itunes for those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorite